0: All right, so when I was originally uh, thinking about this series, I intended this week just to be a portion of chapter 20 and a portion of chapter 21, and then I decided to add three more chapters. (laughs) So I hope you had your coffee as we begin this morning. Now, today's going to be kind of a flyover of some of the events here in Genesis, Uh, focusing in on um, some specific things, some important things, uh, but we'll get to that in a moment. I woke up this morning, and Fern woke up a little bit later, and uh, I set her in bed and I gave her a bottle. Well, not a bottle, I guess it's just a sippy cup at this point. Um, And she she was laughing and giggling and just full of wonder. And it got me thinking about wonder. We're going to talk a little bit about wonder, but it had me thinking about it. It doesn't take much for a wee one to exhibit wonder. I mean, all I was doing was kind of tickling her feet, and she was giggling like crazy. And then a little bit later, Olive, big sis, came in the room, and she kind of crawled on the floor and popped her head up and was like, ah, and Fern just lost it, you know, one of those little guttural laughs, and it's like, man, where does that go? Because it takes a whole lot more for me to wonder, to be joyful, and to be in awe, and all of those things. It takes a little bit more complicated of a joke to bring out some laughter. But then again, all I have to really do is just look at my daughters and there's wonder. So, yeah, this might not work. We'll see. This morning, we're going to look at this passage, really Genesis 18 through 21. Um, And we're going to talk about three things, the road to laughter, the grace of laughter, and times of tears. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy and your love this morning. As Randy shared this morning lord we are thankful and we give you thanks this morning for your many mercies and specifically your love for us as seen in jesus coming to die for our sin we thank you that he was raised from the dead we thank you that he is alive and sits at your right hand and makes intercession for us we thank you for your grace that you give us fresh every morning Lord, I ask that as we look at Abraham's story a little bit more today, uh, we would look at it with fresh eyes and that we would wonder. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The road to laughter. Uh, So, just some background very quickly. Abraham is 99 years old, his wife is about 10 years younger, and she was barren. God had promised that through his offspring, the nations would be blessed. The Lord reminded Abraham of this promise a few times as we've seen over these last few chapters, as we've looked at them these last few weeks. Abraham tried to help that promise along a little bit. But we saw in chapter 17 that Ishmael was not the son of promise. And so as we come to Genesis 18, Abraham has now been waiting 24 years for the promised child And some of us leave a restaurant if the wait is longer than 10 minutes. (laughs) Guilty. This journey of faith and this time of waiting for the promise has been long and wearisome for Abraham. Now, it's likely that during this time of waiting, Abraham's life has been pretty routine. We get snapshots, we get highlights and, and low points of his life. We have the big moments, but... For 24 years, it wasn't constant battles. It wasn't constant uh, visions of the Lord coming to him with fire and smoke. We get these snapshots, but you know, for the most part, his life was routine. He tended his flocks. He woke up early in the morning, and he tended the, the flocks. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited. Sometimes years would go by without hearing anything. And he waited. But as we'll see today, as we work through this, we will find that God is indeed faithful to his word. Let's read Genesis eighteen one through 8. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. And I think this is how we know that Abraham was Midwestern, because he said, a morsel of bread, and then let's look at the feast he prepares. (laughs) So they said, do as you have said, and Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sias of fine flour, that's a lot of flour. Uh, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So we read that three visitors came to Abraham and Sarah, and there's something unique about these visitors, especially one of them in particular. It says right in the beginning of this, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Yahweh appeared to Abraham. It is the Lord who will speak here to Abraham in verses uh, 13, 20, 26, and 33. And Abraham stands before the Lord, as it says in verse 22. So one of the three men must have been God taking on the appearance of a man. We call such an appearance a theophany, a theophany. And at times in the Old Testament, uh, Jesus as well would take on the appearance of a man. We call this a Christophany. And this is different than the incarnation, where Jesus would, as John chapter 1 says, become flesh. More on that in December. (laughs) Stay tuned. We might be looking at John 1. One of these visitors is God, appearing as a man. And I believe that the two companions that are with him are angels, who will, in the following chapter, arrive in Sodom to find Lot. Upon welcoming them, Abraham and Sarah begin to rush around. They're a little bit frantic. They're putting together this meal, uh, just a morsel of bread, right? Uh, They're showing the appropriate hospitality of their day. This would have been normal to, to take care of visitors that way. And they do so by preparing a meal. But this meal, as we will see maybe towards the end of this message, keep this in mind, is not just any ordinary meal. There is something special about it. So kind of bookmark that in your your mind. This is what happens uh, in the following verses, beginning in verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the next tent. I'm sorry, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. (laughs) Emphasis, Caleb. Caleb. The visitors ask, where's Sarah? Abraham says she's in the tent, and then the Lord speaks. So she's within earshot. The Lord knows this, and she can hear what's being said. This is really showing us the purpose of this visit. You see, Abraham has heard this promise directly from the Lord a few times now. Sarah hasn't. Sarah's heard of it from Abraham. This is the purpose for why the Lord has come. He's come for Sarah. And this message is for her. So the Lord announces that the following year she would have a son. And her response is just full of faith, right? (laughs) She laughs. Why does she laugh? Well, she's now beyond the years of reproduction or as the text puts it, the way of women had ceased to be with her. And she, she puts it this way, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now this word rendered worn out It's kind of sugar-coated in our English Bibles, to be honest with you. It's a very harsh word. It's a very negative word about herself. She's really saying, I'm useless. I'm no good. You see, in that culture, unfortunately, the value of a woman was determined on how many children she had given. Here she is, 89 years old and no children. And yet there's this promise lingering out there that she's heard about. You can understand her skepticism. You can understand the harsh way she sees herself. I'm useless. I'm no good to anybody. And this word pleasure means sexual pleasure. She's saying, I'm useless, I'm no good. That guy's old. And now we're going to have sexual pleasure again? It is laughable. But her laugh is full of cynicism. Her words are self-hating, self-loathing, and full of bitterness. But God's response is, again, as we keep seeing over and over, not what you might be expecting. He's so kind. He's so gentle with her. He says, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? What I want you to notice here is what isn't said in his response. Notice that when God restates her objection, he combs out all the negative things that she described herself as, all the self-hating words. He removes the bitter way that she sees herself. He reassures her gently, and then he restates the promise because nothing is too hard for the Lord. The years of barrenness, the years of time, and the strain of a marriage that has gone through some really, really rough patches and will go through more rough patches. None of this is too difficult for the Lord. Sarah responds by denying that she laughed. She lies. She, she says, I didn't do that. And God doesn't explode at her. He doesn't squash her. I mean, she literally lied to the face of the Lord. But it's almost like he smiles as he says, no, but you did. You did. But there's something else in this. When Sarah laughed, as I mentioned, it was the laugh of cynicism, skepticism. uh, Skepticism of this situation. And it is understandable. She's 89 years old. The way of women has ceased with her. This Hebrew word... Uh, is when God says, is anything too hard for me? Uh, When he says that, again, it doesn't really translate great into the English, but really he's diagnosing her cynicism. See, this Hebrew word literally is the word for wonder. And it's used throughout the Old Testament to show God's mighty deeds, his marvelous works, his wonders. God is literally saying to her, is anything too wonderful for me? So, God is saying, Sarah, your laughter is devoid of wonder. Your laughter is the laughter of the skeptic. You've lost your ability to just see my marvelous works. And in grace, through grace, God is going to change that laughter of cynicism, skepticism, and doubt to the laughter of wonder. Wonder at his power, his might his grace, his kindness, and his love for her. What will happen will fill her with wonder. I can't help but think of the song, How Great Is Our God? With wonder filling her heart. God did something similar with Abraham when he showed him the stars. Remember, a few chapters ago, God takes Abraham outside the tent and says, Look at the stars. He's pointing to his wonders, his marvelous power. If God can do all of that, certainly he can do this. So this power will leave Abraham and Sarah full of joy and full of wonder. God has promised Abraham a child, now he's shared that explicitly and personally with Sarah. And this promise and God's kindness towards Sarah, it's really interesting. It's kind of awkwardly juxtaposed with God's wrath. Because immediately after this, God shares about what he's going to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. See, their sin was great and very grave. And God was going to send his two angels to destroy the cities. Now, we're not going to cover this fully. I do want to encourage you to read through it on your own. But some things I do want to mention. Abraham, in a priestly role, intercedes on behalf of his nephew Lot. and and the people of those cities. But by the end of this discussion, this back and forth between him and God, God promises that if he can find ten righteous people in the city, he would not destroy the cities. God knew. And in chapter 19, this story unfolds. The two angels appearing as men arrive in Sodom, and the wicked men of this city try to get Lot to give up these two angels for their twisted desires. Lot, terrible father offers his two daughters instead. The angels prevent this. They stop this from happening. And then the angels convince Lot and his family to flee. There are not ten righteous to be found. They flee. God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife turns around, looks to Sodom, and is turned into a pillar of salt. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah are probably familiar to us. They serve as a kind of archetypical event to show that punishment will befall evil. Because God is just. There are many instances in the Old Testament, especially where evil is dealt with in similar ways. Sometimes, as we've looked at a couple of weeks ago, God waits. We see in Scripture that people are given long periods of time. We don't know how long Sodom and Gomorrah had been given. We just don't know those things. But God offers his mercy so they might yet repent. But by the time we enter this story, it seems that that time has gone. Now, the account of this destruction is given to show us that God doesn't wink at sin. He will deal with evil. Sin and wickedness are serious. And they're so serious that God made a way to deal with it, and to redeem. Even in this story of Sodom and Gomorrah, God rescues Lot and his family. And just as Abraham interceded, so would God. God did so, interceding on our behalf by sending his son, this time not to destroy, but to bear the destruction of our sin. And the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ have brought about a new covenant, A new way of relating to God where forgiveness and reconciliation are available to all who trust in him by faith. Now as we consider these weighty things, as we think about what went on with Sodom and Gomorrah, we need to be careful in assuming that God will only deal with big sins such as sexual immorality. Certainly, Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked places. They were full of wicked sexual sins. Homosexuality and and sexual violence characterized these places. But Ezekiel also shows their pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, and their lack of care for the poor and needy combined with their sexual wickedness to bring about their destruction. Jesus uses the example of Sodom and Gomorrah to give a stark warning to those that reject him and the gospel. Matthew eleven twenty through 24, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you. Than for you. What is their sin? It's unbelief. It's the rejection of Christ. Their unbelief is greater than the wickedness of these cities. And we do know that judgment will come in the end. And God does work even now in the world to deal with wickedness. But we also know that the door of the ark, so to speak, is open to those who would trust in Christ, those who would come to Christ. And for the believer, when one comes to faith in Christ, judgment has fallen on Christ, and there's no more judgment remaining for that believer. I encourage you to maybe read through these chapters. Chapters 18 and 19 get a sense of what might be happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, for what purpose, and, and think about those things. Next, we see in chapter 20, Abraham falls to a familiar foible. He's afraid. And so he gets Sarah to say to Abimelech, king of Gerar, the Philistine, that she was Abraham's sister. Same old story. The story unfolds in much the same way. God protects Sarah despite Abraham. And the main point of this story is given to us to show that God is faithful to his word and his commitment. It brings us back to the grace of God. With Sarah being a part of the king's harem, there is a danger that the promised heir would be illegitimate. Fathered by Abimelech and not Abraham, He would not be the true heir. Yet the Lord intervenes and he prevents the sexual union between the king and Abraham's wife. He stops this from happening. He protects the promise. Despite Abraham's deceptive attempt at self-preservation, God continues to show mercy. He continues to watch over him and Sarah. He continues to watch over the promised seed. And he continues to forgive God's presence and redemptive purposes are not tethered to the believer's performance. It's all grace. And so this road that we've been looking at these last three chapters as we've skimmed them, this road to laughter, as I titled it, has been fraught with danger, doubt, and discouragement. But it's also contained the laughter of cynicism and skepticism. And now we're going to see that God is faithful to his word the grace of laughter. Let's read Genesis 21, 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So this road to this moment has been really long, all these years of waiting. And then we get to the payoff and it's really short. Not a lot of information there, quite brief. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. She bore a son. He's been faithful to his word. The reality of all of this is that God in this moment is actually just beginning to fulfill his promise. Because as we know from Galatians 3, as we've looked at in verse 16, this promise is ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The last few words of that verse, into your offspring, who is Christ. They name the boy Isaac, which is a bit of an inside joke between them and God. His name means laughter. Because a year earlier, as we've seen, Sarah laughed. Sarah says this, God made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. God has brought her laughter. You know, she was laughing in her skepticism a year before. But God has brought her laughter. Really, what's happening is God has changed her laughter, Tim Keller said this, the fact that she can talk about the laughter she's doing now is something that has been brought to her that she didn't have before. She's saying, I have a laughter now I never had before. It's not the bitter, cynical laughter. It's a laughter filled with wonder. And where did the wonder come from? The grace of God came into her life. God's grace overcame the impossibility of her situation. And he gave her a new joy a new wonder. And it's all through the promised son, Isaac, a son of promise and what he signified, what he pointed to. He pointed to the day where there would come another son, the son of promise, Jesus. Now without God's grace, we might laugh out of our cynicism. We might laugh out of our skepticism, a laugh of bitterness trying to keep anxiety and the despondency of hopelessness at bay. But God's grace given through the son of promise comes to you and changes that. He fills you with joy. Now, I am speaking a little bit symbolically because, you know, when I say the word laughter, we're thinking of audible laughter. But perhaps one way to think about it is not so much laughing, but that God takes the brokenness of our lives and the sorrow of our despondency and he fills us with joy, unspeakable, and full of glory. How do we receive it? How do we receive joy? Well, it's by looking to Jesus, the promised seed. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's a long road, your life. It's a long road of endurance. But we can be encouraged by those who have run before. Men and women like Abraham and Sarah. And we look the whole way to Jesus. The same one that they were looking to. Jesus who endured the cross for the joy set before him. There was joy on the other side of it for him. He looked forward to his resurrection. He looked forward to returning to the Father. And he looked forward to you and I. His great eternal reward. And we are partakers in his joy. We share in his joy. First Peter 1, 8, and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So how do we look to him if we haven't seen him? Well, we look through the eyes of faith. And we love him because he first loved us. <coughs> and we're filled with joy. In our belief, I feel like I feel like I uh, maybe took too much Benadryl last night. It's been quite a couple weeks of allergies in the Berg home. John says he writes that our joy may be full. Psalm 16 says that in God's presence there is fullness of joy. Well, His presence is now in us through His Holy Spirit, and so we have joy. And this is the grace of laughter, that even though we doubt and sometimes grow fearful, we're skeptical and more, God supplies the grace that we need through the work of his son, given by the spirit in us to fill us with joy despite our doubts. And so let your hearts be filled with wonder at the work of Christ. it been kind of throwing in this word wonder as I started in my introduction. Well, yeah, it is harder for us maybe now as adults to wonder. But when we consider what Christ has done, may our hearts be filled with wonder again. Sarah's situation was sure impossible, but our situation was more impossible Sarah was barren, but was transformed and filled with joy, laughter and wonder because of Isaac. But you and I were dead in our sins and trespasses. But the ultimate Isaac came to deal with sin and death, and he did so fully. But though we now have this joy, it's a deep-seated joy, there are times where there is sorrow and tears. So what does this story have to say about that? Well, let's look at a time of tears. Genesis 21 Verse eight, and the child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing or laughter. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman, whoever or whatever Sarah says to you, Do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, I have said this type of thing often, but it bears repeating. The Bible is not a series of stories of moral examples. It's a record of God's intervening grace in the lives of people who don't deserve it, don't seek it, who continually resist it, and who don't even appreciate it even after they've been saved. Ultimately, it's the story of redemption woven together through centuries, through many different authors, all to tell us about Jesus and his work to save sinners. And so this passage we're wrapping up with here shows us a dark moment. Sarah, filled with wonder, filled with laughter, receiving her promise, kicks out a Hagar and Ishmael. And at times, I, you know, we think of Hagar and Ishmael as being maybe not necessarily the villains here, but we kind of think less of them. But I'm really grateful that the Lord preserved this story for us to show his compassion to Hagar in the midst of her tears. I think this shows us that though some may be rejoicing in their salvation, full of joy, others are dealing with tremendous sadness and grief over loss, but also over past things like sins and disappointments things including unrealized dreams. And I want to encourage you this morning that God is near to the brokenhearted. Sarah wants to kick her out, so she tells Abraham to do it. And Abraham is upset by this. He doesn't want to do this. But God speaks to Abraham, and he says, be not displeased, displeased. and he tells him to do it. Do what Sarah says. God tells him to do what Sarah says because God has a plan for Hagar, and for Ishmael. He's going to work in Hagar's situation as well. And so they're wandering around in this wilderness of Beersheba with no food, and the water has run out. She sets the child, who really at this point may be about 17 or 18 years old, under a bush, so that she wouldn't have to watch him die. Their situation is dire. And she lifted up her voice and wept. But at this point, there's no more words Sometimes it's like that. You have nothing left to say. And you just sort of groan or you weep. You know, Abraham had questions. He asked God, where is the child who promised? Abraham asked God, how can I know? Hagar wept. This angel or messenger of God, is actually the second time the angel of God has spoken to her. Years ago, before Ishmael was born, he appeared to her. And now she recognizes his voice again. Now, again, this is another theophany. This is the Lord speaking. Possibly a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. But he says, fear not, I have heard the cries of the boy. Why? Well, it's God's grace. He's heard the cries of the boy because none of these people, I hope you see this, none of these people, Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, Lot, none of them deserve to have God move in their life. In the ways that he does over and over and over again. They don't deserve to have their cries heard as they're lost in sin just like we were as well at one time. But God's grace, He heard them because of His kindness, His love, His compassion. See, it's not about deserving, it's not about earning. One day there would be another son who, nearing death, would cry out, but God would not answer him. See, their cries were heard because Jesus' cries would not be. God would let him sink under the crushing weight of his wrath for your iniquities so that through Jesus Christ, God could hear the rest of our cries and come to our rescue. Not just to give us some water to keep us alive, but to give us the never-ending water of life so that we might live forever with him. And we know from history that Ishmael's life goes a different direction than Isaac's. But from this story, we get more than a glimpse at God's compassion. God is near the brokenhearted. He runs to the brokenhearted. Hagar was a slave. She was truly a nobody, kicked to the curb. But God saw her distress and provided for her. And she gives us a name for God. El-Roi, which means the God God who sees. God saw Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Lot. And he sees you and I. In conclusion, we've seen that sometimes the road to laughter or real lasting joy is full of ups and downs. Sometimes in despondency and sorrow we're prone to cynicism and doubt, but God works through grace to overturn the bitterness into joy. He did so through Jesus, the truer and better Isaac, the truer and better promised son, the one who was stricken, who was pierced, was crushed and wounded, so that you could be healed of your iniquity and given peace. He gives us through his grace real joy that makes our heart eternally glad. Though we may struggle with times of brokenness and times of tears, times of intense sadness and grief, you can be confident that God hears your cries. The psalmist says he catches your tears in a bottle. God remembers. He knows. He knows your suffering. Jesus suffered and he sympathizes with your weakness. He suffered so you can have eternal comfort. And because of Jesus, weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And you can be assured of that eternal joy and laughter to come when we forever, for all eternity, live in his presence. In Genesis 18, Abraham prepared a meal for his guests. You thought I forgot. There was no ordinary meal. This was no ordinary meal. It was a symbolic meal done to celebrate a covenant. The Lord certainly didn't need to eat, but he did so to show his intimate friendship with Abraham. And so in a similar manner, when we take of the Lord's Supper, as we'll do now, we are celebrating a covenantal meal, It is a seal. It is another sign, as Mike talked about signs last week. This is another sign and seal of the covenant. That's really what Abraham and Sarah were preparing for these three visitors. So this is proclaiming the covenant made through the shedding of the blood of Jesus once and for all as we partake of this celebratory meal. It's not simply a memorial or some ritual that we do every now and then. really bolsters our faith and it reveals that we are just in God's sight through Jesus' sacrifice. And so when we proclaim Christ through this simple meal, we commune with him unlike we do anywhere else. It's an intimate meal of friendship. Those who have fellowship with God by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are invited to this table. Jesus shared this meal with his disciples. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, For I received... From the Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we remember his death this morning, the shedding of his blood to redeem fallen sinners. And we celebrate the resurrection life that we have now been given. So as Nate and the team lead us in some more singing, uh, I invite you to form a line in the center aisle and uh, make your way to the front. Um, You'll notice we have um, a third table set up now. That's just some extra uh, cups of the the juice. Um, Make your way to the table. Take it back to your seat and partake there. Um, As well, there are gluten-free crackers if that serves you. Brothers and sisters, Christ has died Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this morning, we thank you by celebrating and honoring and remembering that death with this intimate meal of friendship. This sign of the covenant that we are in. Lord, we thank you this morning that you have dealt with us in your mercy and grace. And that Jesus bore the wrath that we so rightly deserved. He took it upon himself as our substitute. We thank you that now we can come to you because of grace, boldly, as your sons and daughters, without fear of any future judgment. we thank you that because of this, our hearts can be filled with wonder, our hearts can be filled with joy, and that it is an everlasting joy, an everlasting wonder at your mighty works, your mighty power, your grace and your glory, and your love for us. Father, as we partake of this meal together, I ask that you would help us to wonder. May we wonder at your power and might. And especially your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.